Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and to speak to our hearts and to our minds. And Lord, as we look at the Bible, this document, this thing that we as Christ followers center in on, we realize that it is not as simple as perhaps we have uh, thought. And that there's aspects of it that maybe might even be embarrassing to us. Lord, I thank you that you have guarded your word, and I thank you that it is still true. But God, I pray you'd forgive us, perhaps, for bringing filters or a way of looking at it that is not really what you've intended. God, as we look at this idea of prophecy today, God, it is something that people talk about, some people are embarrassed about, and others just plain say it does not exist because how could anything like that actually happen? Lord, I pray this morning that as we see the role of the prophet in the Bible. We see what they did, how they lived, that we would understand what, the, what uh, the place of it would be in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would not scoff, but instead, Lord, that we would have a right understanding and how to hold it in our lives, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are visiting with us this morning, we want to say welcome to uh, UCC. At UCC, we... Um, we are, we are one big family, uh, sometimes dysfunctional, but uh, we, we, we like to have fun and we like to kind of enjoy one another's company. We are not uh, so bent upon performance. We are more about the people. Uh, we've been going through a series called Misheard, and the whole series is about going to the Bible and saying, okay, what does the Bible really mean? How, how do we actually understand this? And one of the things we have to understand about the Bible is that we have said to, our, we have said to people over the past, oh, it's simple. Just read it. But then you start reading, you're like, what? What is this? Where does that come from? How, how do I understand this? And, and so what we've tried to do through this series, through Pastor Marshall and Jen and I, we've kind of walked through some popular topics and saying, okay, so how do we understand this aspect of the Bible? How do we say this is how we understand it? And, and in a way that makes sense. Now, when I say makes sense, there's a, uh, a form of study called hermeneutics, and we talked about that a few weeks back. And hermeneutics is just a way of saying, this is how you understand. This is the context of the Bible. The Bible has context. And because it is an ancient document written thousands of years ago, sometimes that context is lost on us. So we're reading about people in different times, different language, different culture, and we're like, I don't understand that. And part of us need to say... You weren't meant to understand it, and this is why, and this is how we go. And so we've been walking through this series. Today we're going to be looking at this idea of prophecy, because this is something that has been in the forefront of different conversations, whether the media or, or different uh, speakers about it. And it's a part of the Bible that's actually, uh, it's there, but we don't know what to do with it. Now, a little interesting tidbit for you. The Bible, uh, as, as we understand the Bible, our, the Judeo-Christian Bible, is the only religious document, spiritual document, that predicts the future. Uh, when you go through the Quran, we go through the uh, Hindu scriptures, when you go through the Book of Mormon, and not the musical, but the actual Book of Mormon, when you go through all these things, no other book, no other uh, spiritual document would claim to predict the future. And so with that, that's very interesting that we would say about our Bible that it would, but in a way that we have to kind of make sure we understand. The video you saw was a guy named Harold Camping. Um, the year is 2010, and I'm, it's late August, and I am where I am always will be in late August. I'm at the comic book convention in Toronto. And I am in line with a friend of mine, and you know, on either side of me is a 400-pound Spock and a, uh, somebody else. It's just it's a roll and roll upon people dressed up. It's, it's a lot of fun, and I enjoy it. You're welcome to join me just and you don't know me. Um, and no, I don't dress up in case you were wondering. Nobody wants to see a short brown Batman. Um, 
Or maybe they do. I don't know. <laughs> Just for Brian, I will. Um, so 2010, it's, it's a Saturday, it's August, I'm waiting to get in line. And all of a sudden, this, big, this camper drives in. And on the side of the camper is a world will end May 21st, 2011. And my friend and I, who, who is another Christ follower, we look at each other. Oh, no. Please don't. Please don't. And so the camper stops. It outpours these people wearing these T-shirts saying the end of the world is coming, Judgment Day, May 21st. We're like, please don't talk to us. Please don't talk to us. Please go away. Please go away. Right? And then, of course, they're going up and down the line. There's like hundreds of people in line to get into the, uh, into the uh, Toronto Convention Center. And they're talking to them. And I'm like, oh. Why? Why? You've never seen a better scene than 400-pound Spock screaming at the person and an 80-year-old lady telling the person why the world is going to end. It's the best. It was the most surreal conversation. But this was happening. And I'm sitting there, and my friend and I were talking in hushed tones, and the person's coming along passing out a pamphlet. Do you want to know about the end of the world? I'm like, no, I don't. Please go away. You're making me look bad. And by me, I mean like Christians. What is wrong with us that we actually, like this woman who's telling us these people who are dressed in different regalia, that the end of the world is coming with a big smile on her face. The end of the world is coming. I don't know if that's the proper response. Do you understand what your face is doing? It's smiling, you know. That means billions of people are going to die. You know, if you actually believe this, there should be some weeping, some uh, different, different pose about you. They're going up and down the line telling these people about it. And, of course, the response is, it's your response. Oh, what are they doing? Oh, my goodness. It's embarrassing. Right? It's embarrassing. But yet they're doing it. And, of course, this whole Herald Camping thing and the media, of course, the media loves to pick. Um, one of my professors in uh, Bible college used to say, uh, Christianity is, uh, is like, uh, it's a very granola religion. We have our fruits, nuts, and flakes. And it's interesting how the media always picks up on those individuals and they get the FaceTime. You know, heaven forbid if Andy Stanley or Francis Chan gets on CNN, no, 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 we got to go to Harold Camping, this guy who's got this really deep monotone voice who has predicted the end of the world. And his calculations, by the way, are 7,000 years after the flood. Please, Mr. Camping, tell me, what date did you use to figure that out? And did you know that the calendar as we understand it today did not come into existence until anyways you get the idea right so you look at this and you say to yourself Ugh. there's a, another billboard that i was put up i thought it was kind of funny right uh third time's the charm right because this gentleman did predict this previously so why is it that there are people who call themselves christians who would say here is a date here is a calendar I remember when I was a, um, a teenager, I was in uh, my church, and there was a book that came out, Why, God, why Jesus Will Return in 1988. 88 Reasons why, why Christ Will Return in 1988. And our pastor spoke on it. He didn't speak on it like he agreed with it, but he spoke on it like, oh, here's some reasons why Jesus could return. And, of course, we're all riveted, right? When as soon as someone says a date, you're like, oh, this is true, right? How many of you remember Y2K? Right? The year 2000, 1999, the clock's ticking down, you're like, we're all going to die, right? Like, you know, we, we have this ability within us to say, okay, I know what the Bible says. I know the future. But the problem is, we don't. And countless number of individuals, not just Christians, the great thing is that there's other individuals, uh, Joseph Smith, Mormon faith, uh, Hindus, like different religions have predicted the end of the world. Of course, the Mayans, 2012. I just watched that on television the other day. It's a great movie, John Cusack. He's a classic, right? But, uh, you know, we, the people have predicted the end of the world, and of course, we are still here. 
or are we the matrix? No, um, sorry. <laughs> That's, that's way too meta. We don't get in there anyways. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through what the Bible talks about in regards to prophecy, but not just talk about prophecy, to talk about a prophet. Because it's this individual that appears in the Bible, and it's larger than life. And you can't understand prophecy until you understand the prophet himself or herself that was speaking about this. Now, let's talk about this real quick here. There is a tension that exists within those who read the Bible. The Bible is a historical document, but it is also a peek into the understanding the supernatural world. We ignore, we ignore either at our peril. So what's happened within Christianity today is some of us will say the Bible is a way of looking at how to be a good person, to live life and, and, and to be a good person. And that is true. There's others who say, oh, no, the Bible is, you know, there's demons under my bed and, you know, I, I didn't get a good parking spot, therefore God's mad at me. You know, there's people who go the other direction, right? And both kind of are at the peripheral of Christianity and we both look at them like, I don't know if I'm even either camp. So what can happen is, is as, as Christians, we can say, well, I'm just going to ignore both. And the problem with that and the problem within understanding the Bible is when we go to one extreme or the other, we are missing out about the balance of what scripture is. And so the Bible is a historical document. It is a, a record of actual people who lived on the planet Earth at a certain time, who went to certain places and did things, and we have archaeological, anthropological proof for that. But it is also a, a book that speaks about God, talks about angels, talks about demons, talks about the Holy Spirit. And so there is a supernatural part of it. And both of these must be in balance. And if you ignore either, you are actually going to miss out on what God wants to say to us in the Bible. And so while we may make fun of people who perhaps, um, or maybe believe people who make predictions about the future, we have to always guard our own hearts so that cynicism and scoffing um, doesn't creep in too that we, we kind of threw everything away. So the Bible is a very unique uh, document that way. Biblical prophecy can be both now and not yet. Now the reason I put three different colors there, I want to take this part three different ways. Biblical prophecy, the Bible does speak about the future. I'm going to show you what the percentage of that is in a second, but it does speak about the future. Whichever way you look at this, you can't help but read through the Old Testament and the New Testament to see that Jesus or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Huldah or any of these other prophet or prophetesses, if you want to use a female term for the women there, they did talk about the future. But then how do we understand that? Right? Like why is it that, that, that those predictions, that way of looking at the future was so clouded in metaphor and language and some of it's downright apocalyptic. And I use apocalyptic when, 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 when John, the apostle, is writing the book of Revelations. He's trying to describe things. He's trying to, he's trying to frame them in a way that he's trying to make sense of what he's seeing here. And, and he's using the best language that he can to kind of convey that. So by, biblical prophecy, and I say word can be. That's an important part to it, right? When you read through the Bible, when you read through the biblical prophecies of, of, of the Bible, you must understand they, they have to have a context of now and not yet, right? When a prophet stood up, he did not say, by the way, in a continent you haven't discovered yet, in a people group you haven't understood yet, in 2012, the world's going to come to an end. The people there were like, what? what is he talking about? That doesn't even make sense. What, like, what are you talking about, right? Whenever the prophet spoke to the people, whatever he said, whatever they said, had to have context to those they were saying it to, or else it's just gibberish. 
And so what can happen sometimes is we look at this thousands of years later, and we, because of our egos, our narcissism, whatever, it's all about us. It's all about us. It's talking about us. We're living in this time, or this is, this is our time right now. And we have to kind of take our ego out of it and say, okay, whatever the prophet is saying, he's saying to this particular time, this particular place. A couple of weeks back, Pastor Jen went through Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper. Right, and this scripture has been taken for a prosperity gospel or to say God's blessing upon you. But when you look at the time that Jeremiah was writing, the prosperity he was talking about was not financial. It was not health. It was not any of the things that this scripture is applied to. It's actually about the people returning from Babylon back to Israel. He's writing in the time what we call the exile. For 70 years, the Israelites were taken from, from Israel to Babylon. And so when Jeremiah the prophet says, I know I have the plans for you, the plans to prosper, we go, oh, God wants me to be rich. No, he wants the Israelites to go back to their home, their their nation, because that's what God was talking about back then. Every scripture has to have a context, and we at our peril take it and apply it to ourselves without any understanding of what that looks like. So biblical prophecy can be both now and not yet. So when we talk about the percentages, this is what we're looking at. It should be pointed out that less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Less than 5% specifically concerns the new covenant age, i.e. the New Testament onwards. And less than 1% concerns events still future to us. So when you think about it, this 1%, the one percenters, there it is again, right? This 1% of prophecy gets all the volume. It's all people want to talk about, right? It's like, wait a minute. What about the other 99%? What is God saying in the 99%? You know, when you, when you buy a hamburger, you know, it tells you this is how much filler it has. This is how much filler the patty has, right? Every hamburger you buy has other things holding it together, right? Because it's not pure meat. That would be the best burger ever, but there has to be things that hold the ground beef together. Sometimes we look at the Bible and we say, what's filler? What's this passing time? And my response to you is nothing. Everything in this book, everything in this document was given to us for a reason. Now, the reason may not necessarily be what you think it is, but it's there for a reason. So when we talk about percentages, biblical prophecy uh, doesn't have as much of a place as we think it is. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21. Now, look what Peter is trying to convey to Gentiles, to the early church about prophecy. He says this, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origins in in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Whatever Peter is trying to convey, he's trying to, he has a couple of tensions taking place. The first tension is this, that whatever is in the Bible was given to us by God. I said to you the very first week that we looked at this, you can trust this book. You can trust it historically. You can trust it anthropologically. You can trust it scientifically. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, where are you going... We'll get to that at some other point in time, right? But you can trust this book. But what I can't say this book can do for you is it cannot prove to you God's existence. I can't. 
If you do not believe, if you are here and you are maybe an atheist or maybe you're an agnostic or, or, or whatever uh, label you want to apply to yourself, you and I can sit down and I can walk you through the Bible, but it does not necessarily mean that I'm going to convince you of God's existence. That's something else. That, that's a Holy Spirit. That's, that's something altogether different, right? But in, 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 in what the Bible is, is a, a, a record of people, of cultures, of practices, it is absolutely reliable. And because that part is reliable, then we can say the other part about the supernatural can also be reliable as well too. So when Peter is writing his letter, his second letter, which is important because he's trying to help, him, help, help his audience understand something, he's saying, listen, the prophetic message of the Bible, of, of in your hearts, it's reliable. But it does not find its origins in human will. So when someone says to me, well, what do you make about Harold Camping? I say, well, the guy is, is well-meaning, he seems to sleep a lot on his television set there. I don't know why he has his eyes closed a lot. But he was wrong. And, 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 and Harold Camping went too far when he says the Bible guarantees it. I don't read that kind of a guarantee in the Bible. Right? The only thing the Bible guarantees is that Harold Camping was wrong. And Harold Camping should be happy he lives in the new covenant because in the old covenant he'd be stoned to death. Did you know that in the Bible, that if anybody said anything, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't happen or didn't come, come to pass, God said, kill them? Hmm. I wonder if we enacted that, well, you know, we, we don't want to be violent anymore, but maybe just take away his, his, I don't know, his television career or his book deal or whatever it would be. Just take that away. You made a wrong prediction. You actually made a date and it was wrong. Therefore, mm, we're going we're gonna to yank you. We're going to yank your license be able to come on television and talk about this type of stuff. The Bible is very clear that, that there is this tension that, that the Bible does talk about what is to come. But it's not as neat and as, as, as tidy as we like to think it is. And don't even get me started about the rapture, where that came from, and, and does it even have a biblical context? And, and, and can we look at that and saying, well, does the Bible actually talk about that, or are we looking at something different? That's, that's a whole other different story there. When we go forward here, let's take a look at what the prophet and priest are. Because when you look at the Bible, right, we know about the priests. These are individuals that God called, trained to teach the law to the people. What's the difference between the priest and the prophet? Why does a prophet even exist? Isn't there a role for the moral teaching uh, in the Bible there? Why does a prophet need to exist? The priest was responsible to be the spiritual and moral guide to the people. While the priest was often seen primarily as a mediator between the people and God in the temple sacrifices, his larger duty was to teach God's law to the people. Right? The priest came from the tribe of Levite. And, and, and they were meant to record the law and, and to teach it to the people, study school, right? That was their job. But here's the problem. In Israel's history... However, the priests themselves often became corrupt and turned away from God, leading the people in the worship of idols. Prophets arose when the priests failed to teach God's law to the people. In a sense, God called and spoke through the prophets as whistleblowers when the whole enterprise was on the brink of self-destruction. So the priests were there, and their job was to say, this is, this is God's law, and this is how we adhere to it. But what happens if they become corrupt? What happens if they go, yeah, it's God, and it's Baal, and it's Asherah, and it's all these other religions. All of a sudden, the entire moral code of a nation, and we see this in the Old Testament, shifts. God created a mechanism 
to be able to come up and say, okay, now you've gone too far. And that's when the prophets arose, and that's when the prophets would step forward. The prophet was a counterbalance to king, culture, and country. Right? Remember David? David wants Bathsheba to be his wife. What does he do? He kills uh, Bathsheba's husband. He's the king. He's allowed to do that. Then what happens? The prophet stands before David. Right? Remember, this guy has got to have, has, has to know that God sent him. Why? He stands before David, and David's soldiers, mighty men, and says, David, you have sinned. And God is not happy. And because of that, he's going to take the life of your firstborn child. Because what you did was wrong. You took a life. You took a person who did not belong to you. And the prophet stood before the king and said, you are doing wrong. And God is not pleased. Right? But the prophet would do that for the king, for the culture. When the entire nation was saying, hey, this is good. Let's all do this. The prophet would stand up and going, no, that's not what God wants from you. That's not what he's created you for. That's not what he gave, what he wants from you. And also for the country, right? The prophets would rise up for Israel and saying, Israel, listen, you are God's chosen. He he has chosen you out of everybody else, not because of how great you are, but because of his plan. Come back to him, right? So the prophet was the counterbalance to that. And the difference between the prophet and the priest is this as well. In most cases, the prophets were bivocational. God tapped them for special duty while in the midst of other professions. Some prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, were priests with the duties described above. Others were shepherds, including Moses and Amos. Deborah was a judge adjudicating issues for Israelites. Huldah was uh, probably a teacher in the university sector of Jerusalem. The task of prophet overlaid with other jobs. Now, why is this brilliant? Because if there's a financial incentive for you to toe the party line, you will do so. Right now in Canada and the United States, we have elections. And in elections, there are, there's this, this way of saying, okay, toe the party line. This is what your leader is saying. Everybody say the same thing, right? As a matter of fact, in, in, um, in the States, there's something called the whip. The whip, the party whip, is a person who comes around saying, by the way, you're off script. Get back in line, right? Well, the prophet was the only person who didn't take money from the king from the country, or for anything, and you get to stand up and say, you're doing wrong. That made that individual very unpopular. And because he did not, or she did not take uh, finances from their office, they got to say whatever they wanted. Because they weren't worried about people saying, okay, by the way, you're fired. What am I, I going to do now? My family's got to eat, right? So the prophets themselves um, were able to say what they said because of uh, them being outside of the uh, uh, centers of power. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, God creates the office of the prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 14 to 22, I'm going to read this to you because what you need to understand about Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy is the book of the law. Moses, this is the world's longest sermon. I know you think I have those, right? But Moses stands out for chapter after chapter and he tells the people, listen, before you go in the promised land, here's what you need to know. Right? And that's all the book of Deuteronomy is, is the book of the law to give to the people before they go in the promised land. And in this book, Moses tells the people about the individual called the prophet. And look what he says in uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18, verses 14 to 22. The nations you're about to displace consult sorcerers and fortune tellers, but the Lord your God forbids you to do such things. So Moses is saying, you're about to go in the promised land. 
The promised land is full. Remember we talked about the cult of Baal, right? Child sacrifice, Asherah, uh, temple prostitution. These are the people you're going to meet, right? So this is what Moses says. Moses continued, the Lord your God will raise up for, for you a prophet like me from among the fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you yourselves requested the Lord your God when you assembled at Mount Sinai. Look at this. You said, do not let us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this blazing fire, for we will die. Remember when Moses goes before God, people are like, okay, Moses, you go talk to God because frankly, he's freaking us out, right? We're a little terrified of, this, of, of God right now. The mountain is shaking. This guy over there, he touched it and he died. Moses, you go talk to God. We'll stay back here. And maybe if we're bored, we'll make a golden calf as well too, right? But Moses, you go talk to God, right? So God is saying, this prophet, this individual is going to speak for me because you refuse to speak to me directly. Which again, is a great foreshadowing of Jesus being our intermediary between God and us, right? That's just a beautiful picture of that in the future. Let's go on. It says this in verse 17. Then the Lord said to me, what they have said is right. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command them. I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the messages the prophet proclaims on my behalf. But any prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name or speaks in the name of another God must die. You need to understand something. God was passionate about his word. Today he is, and back then he was as well too. And he said, anyone who gets up and speaks on my behalf but says what I do not approve of, or it goes contrary to my law, you are in deep water. One of the reasons why, when I was back in Bible college, when I was trained to be a pastor, one of the reasons why I never wanted to preach, because this is a verse. Not that I'm, I'm a prophet, but, but the Bible says, those who teach my law are going to be judged twice as harsh as anyone else. That's why I feel sorry for all these bloggers out there right now. That's why I feel sorry for all these people talking on, uh, right now. I'm like, do you not understand what you are doing? You claim to speak for God, but you are perverting the law of God. Do you not understand that when you stand before God, he is not going to be okay with this? And you have to understand something about me. Whenever I preach and teach to you, one of the reasons why I take so long to put together a sermon is because I'm, a, I'm scared I'm going to make a mistake. I'm, I'm scared that I'm going to take God's word and twist it in some way to match my own comfort zones or what I think to be true or right. This, this one's free. If you read the Bible through a certain lens, Calvinist, Arminianist, uh, predestination, rapture, uh, pacifist, uh, charismatic, whatever it is, you need to understand something, that you are, you, are, you are not taking into account the full balance of the Bible. I don't read the Bible as a Pentecostal or a Baptist or Alliance, even though we are a Christian Missionary Alliance church or Catholic or whatever else. I try as much as possible, and I confess this to you, I don't get it all right. I try to read the Bible as much as possible as the Bible would speak to us. And sometimes it doesn't say things we like, but it's there. And I don't try with a black marker, oh, I don't like this part, it's making me uncomfortable. Instead I say, Lord, how do I understand this in context with who and what you are? Because God, in 1 John, we, we, we learn that you're love. But then I see this part of you. How do I understand that, God? There has to always be a balance in how we understand who God is and his word. God does not fit into our neat theological terms. He has left us the Bible to help us to reveal who he is to us, but we must never presume that we have it all right. Let's go on. 
verse 21. But you may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give the message. The prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. So in the book of Deuteronomy, God sets up this idea of what a prophet was. And he says, listen, if what they say happens, listen to them. If what they say is a lie does not happen, kill them. Yeah, that's a little harsh, right? But that's how God viewed his word, right? So we look at the prophet. Well, we need to understand that's a job description, but there's two main roles of the prophets in the Bible, right? The prophets were primarily concerned with the sin of Israel. Now here's, uh, I'm going to put a graph on the screen just stick with me on this, okay? I tried to find the most simple one I could find, and literally this was it, okay? What you need to understand is, is those of you who are in university or college right now, if you were to keep a diary, and by the way, I would recommend you do. It's a great way of looking back on a time of your life you're going to hate later on, right? But in, in this time of life right now, when you put a Facebook post or whatever it is, you, you say things, but it's in the context of university. For those of you who are newly married, you are in the throes of, of a honeymoon phase of marriage, and those of us who are married many years, we look at you and we smile and we nod, and, we like, and under our breath we say, wait, it did. It gets more interesting later on. Not that it gets worse. It gets more interesting, right? You have a context to your life. Whether you're in school, whether you're married, whether you're looking for a job, whether you're in a career that you hate, you have a context for your life. And if you put something on Facebook, if you write a diary, it's in that context. When you look at the prophets, what you need to understand is when they are writing is as much as important as what they are saying. Because when they are writing is speaking to the time of the nation. So when you look at the prophet, when you look at, for example, um, Zephaniah. Zephaniah is writing in 638 uh, BC. But when you look at Zephaniah, he's right before the exile, the Babylonian exile. So he's saying things like, listen, stop chasing after foreign gods. Stop going after these things. God is angry with you, and if you do not stop what you are doing, he is going to bring a punishment. He is going to, he's going to use this evil nation to teach you a lesson. You're like, oh, that's so cruel. I know, heaven forbid, if God just doesn't do what we want him to do, right? So when you look at the prophets, what you say to yourself is that there's context. And if I can complicate it a little bit more, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The Bible, the, Israel splits for a period of time. And because of that, the prophets who are speaking in the northern kingdom, Amos, Hosea, Nahum, and Jonah, they're talking about something. They're, they're, the, 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 what they're saying is in context of where they're saying it and the time they're saying it. You look down below the Judah southern kingdom, right? Did you know that Malachi was the last prophet of the Bible, last Old Testament prophet? And between him and Jesus is 400 years of silence. God refuses to send a prophet to speak to the people for 400 years. Malachi was the last, the last book of the Old Testament, but he's also the last prophet of that age, right? The book of Haggai, I love, if I was going to say what's my favorite book of the Bible in the Old Testament, Haggai is one of them because he is all about temple. He's all about people are coming back from Babylonian exile. They were, they're planting their gardens. They're repairing their houses. But Haggai is saying, don't forget God, right? When they say something is as important as what they're saying. And when you understand the graph, you understand that, and that every prophet is trying to say to you, this is, this is what's happening in this period of time. Now, these are, by the way, the minor prophets. You'll, you're, you're looking at the graph like, where's Jeremiah? Where's Isaiah? 
that graph was a little bit more complicated, so I try to give you a more of a simplistic one. The point is this. The prophets in the Bible, they spoke because of the context they were existing in. So when you read their books, make sure you understand something. Maybe just dig a little deeper. And if you want, I can give you some recommendations and some Bible commentaries or a Bible dictionary just to have as a companion guide to read the Bible. Because when you understand when they lived, what is happening, then you understand their message. And unless you understand those first two parts, the third part is something that is not going to make much sense to you. In uh, Bible college, our professors used to say, any verse without a context is a pretext. And what he meant by that was, unless you understand the context of the verse, what it means then, you will take it and you'll twist it to make it what you want to mean now. Every verse must have a context. Every preacher, every pastor, every student of the Bible, that's everybody in this room, if you are a student of the Bible, you must understand that the Bible is a historical document. It has a timeline, and these, this timeline is important to what God's message is for what he's trying to say there. So look at the Second Chronicles. We have a great example of this. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials uh, of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshipped Asherah, Poles, and idols. Again, uh, pagan worship. Because of their guilt, God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem. Although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. That's what the prophets do. The prophets show up and say, you have gone off course. This is not what God wants for you. This is not what God wants for you. And you know what? I think the church is seeing a resurgence of this today. We have this idea called social justice, right? The church is, is getting back into this idea of helping the poor and compassion. And that's important. But I want you to know something. Social justice is actually the wrong terminology for it for Christians. Social justice implies society, right? Society justice. And what a society thinks is just may not be what God thinks is just. And so what we need to think about is rather than social justice, is we need to think of it as kingdom justice. Because remember Jesus when he teaches his disciples to pray on earth as it is in heaven. What's our goal as Christ followers? To bring the idea of the kingdom of heaven on earth. That every human being has value. That nobody's allowed to abuse or to hurt or to harm. And that if we have access, that we take our possessions and we serve other people. We serve the church and we serve other people. That's kingdom justice. And kingdom justice will clash with social justice. That's why you see Christ followers who perhaps are so involved with social justice that they're going off trajectory and forgetting about the kingdom of heaven. So social justice is important, but I would, I would urge you as Christ followers to say, and don't use this because you're like, are you into social justice? No, I'm into kingdom justice. Okay, that just got weird. And I'm going to stop this conversation right now, right? You can use the word social justice, but what you really hopefully, I hope, I pray, is it's kingdom justice. Because the prophets weren't about social justice. They were about kingdom justice. And so when we look at the prophets, what they were kept trying to say is, listen, come back to God. He loves you, right? Brian led us through the song, Good, Good Father, right? God is good, but he's not good because he does what you want. He's good because he does what's good for you. And just like any parent who disciplines their children, that's what God does to us. I wish every prayer that I answered came to pass. But this would be a horrible world if it did. Why? Because I'm human and I, I'm sinful. And my prayers are not always pure and holy. And I don't know God's plan. Therefore, I pray and God's like, there, there. 
there. I'm just going to ignore that one. We're going to pretend that didn't happen. Because if I answer that one, it's going to take you in a way that you do not want. How many times have you asked for money? Lord, if I could just win the lottery. Lord, if I could just have this. Lord, if I could just have that relationship. God, if I could just have that job. Lord, if I could just have this grade. God's like, don't you understand? If I say yes to this, I see what happens afterwards. And, and sometimes God has a good father to us. And we may not have a good representation of what a good father is. I know I struggle with it as well. But God is a good father and knows what's best for us. And sometimes his best response to us is no. Right? That's what, how, how God looks at us, right? So when the prophets would come before the people, he would, they would say to the people, listen, pleasure is not all that there is. Your happiness is not God's major concern. Instead, there is something higher. There's something deeper. Something more, there's more profound that God is calling you to. And that's what the prophets would do. But you have to understand, these individuals who call themselves prophets, who were prophets, it was not easy for them. Look at uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 20. This is Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah's human moment. Now, we know about Jeremiah the prophet. He's writing in the time of the exile. And we suspect, we don't know, but we suspect that Jeremiah was between the ages of 16 and 18. We, we, we think this because of language syntax, but also how he describes himself, right? So Jeremiah was a very young prophet called to the people, right? How many of you would listen to a 17-year-old telling you how to live your life? Um, probably not that many, right? You're like, okay, when you get acne, then you come talk to me, right? You know, so, but Jeremiah is a prophet. And now look, look at this moment of Jeremiah's kind of self-confession before God. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7 and 8. Look what he says to God. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Does that not sound like a teenager? Okay? Right? He's saying, God, I love being a prophet. I love speaking for you, but everybody hates me. I have no, I've got like five friends on Facebook. It's just not working out well, right? But then look, what they, look, look, look at the next verses. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That's the tension of what a prophet is. On the one hand, you say what is not popular to the culture. On the other hand, you don't have any choice. Because God is so, you're so full of God's presence. You, you see it. That's what's so important about a prophet. When the prophets do speak of the future, it falls into two categories, end times and messianic. Remember that 1%? This is what it looks at, right? Uh, when you take a look at the prophets, they talk about Jesus. And I, I just chose a few, right? But hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, these prophets are, ta- are foretelling of the Messiah, the one who is to come. And you see it up there and... Really, there's about 300 messianic prophecies. I'm not going to put them all up there. But I just want you to see the dates, right? You know, Psalms 22, a thousand years before Christ enters the scene. They're talking about what's going to happen to Jesus, right? The prophet Isaiah, the prophet uh, Zechariah, Micah, right? They all are talking about what is to come. So the prophets would talk about the messianic age and they would talk about what is to come. But just so you know, the prophets don't cease in the Old Testament. This is a common misconception. In the book of Acts, we meet a guy named Agabus. He's a prophet. And he, he prophesies twice. This is the last time he prophesies. And, but look what happens here. So Agabus comes down to talk to Paul the Apostle, right? 
one of the greatest evangelists of the church of that time. And this is what he says to Paul. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his hands and his feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. He's basically saying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. The prophet said that to you. I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm going to rebook. I'm heading over here instead. I'm not going to Jerusalem. You know what Paul does? Thanks, Agabus. Heading to Jerusalem. God's called me. Heading there. And exactly as he described here, this is how we historically we believe Paul met his end in Jerusalem. That Paul was martyred in Jerusalem. Even though he was warned by the prophet. The prophet didn't say go. The prophet says, hey, Paul, here's the cost of you going. Here's the cost of you obeying God. Are you okay with that? And Paul, being Paul, like, yeah, absolutely. Paul still goes through Jerusalem and was martyred. Right? When you look at his, his uh, missionary journeys, it ends in Jerusalem. Why? Because the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem finally get a hold of him. Remember, remember Paul was the Jew um, who, was, who was part of the uh, persecution of the early church, who abandons that, becomes a Christ follower himself. They are looking for blood. And when this guy comes back in Jerusalem, they take their opportunity and they kill him. So prophecy does not end in the Old Testament. It actually continues on. And which brings us to our last point. I'm going to close with this. Talking about the gift of prophecy. The Bible talks very clearly in several places that there's something called the gift of prophecy that exists in the Bible. The gift of prophecy is a multi-layered and difficult to define. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Okay, If you're asking, if you're looking for a definition or a way of looking at it, it's not going to go so well because it's very complex. If we use the prophets as a guideline, then we can say it is a gift of discernment and remembering God's word. I was at a church uh, a couple years ago, and a guy came up to me and introduced himself as, Hi, I'm prophet so-and-so. Really? Okay. I didn't get the memo, but uh, do tell, right? Uh, The thing is this. Anybody who would say they have the gift of prophecy, I would say is passionate about justice and truth and God's law and bringing people back to that. Because that's what the prophets of the Old Testament did. Right? It wasn't just like, hey, I see the lottery numbers in three years is going to be this. Who doesn't want to be friends with that individual? Right? But if the prophets in the Old Testament were concerned about the people straying away from God, then the gift of prophecy today is the same thing. And I see it. I see people standing up and saying, by the way, season the line. I get it. Horrible. Don't want to kill anybody. But really putting his address on the internet so this guy get killed and hurt by people? Maybe not a great idea, right? And you're like, well, that doesn't sound like prophet. I'm just saying, there's a context of saying a prophet stands up and saying, I see past all the rhetoric. I see past the emotions. And I say, okay, maybe human life has more value. And those of you who've ate the hamburger or chicken, Cecil the Lions is another animal. Pretty. So is a cow. My boss are cows. So, you know, just to be clear on that, right? Uh, I deliver milk. So, you know, my boss are cows, right? Our culture is so messed up. (laughs) Honestly, I don't even like looking at Facebook anymore, right? Because everyone's become a Facebook activist, right? And and there's always these articles. There's a great book, by the way. You look for summer reading before summer's over. Book by name Ryan Holiday. It's called Trust Me, I'm Lying. The book is about a guy who, is, who used to be the uh, marketing director for American Apparel. And for those of you who know about the marketing, marketing direction of American Apparel, you will already know that this guy is notorious. He talks about how easy 
It is to manipulate the media. And the internet and how it's clickbait and, 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 and how it's twisted. And he's actually been reformed. And he's not, a, by the way, he's not a Christian. This book is not a Christian book. So if you pick it up and you see some words in there, uh, just, you know, little little heads up there. But what he's trying to say is that there's so much anger and resentment and rhetoric that nobody knows how to understand the world. Well, the gift of prophecy has a way of saying, okay, listen, apart from the emotion, apart from the rhetoric, this is what God wants. Second Peter, again, chapter 3, verse 2 to 3. I want to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through, all, through your apostles. Above all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. You know what a scoffer is? A person who says, did God really mean that? Just because it says in the Old Testament doesn't mean it applies today. Right? You get to live the way you want. And, and they kind of scoff and they make fun. Right? I have been a scoffer when I saw Harold Camping. Oh, come on. Somebody else trying to predict the future? This is just embarrassing. Right? This, is, this is just embarrassing. But then do I suddenly say, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about the future. It's, it's a moralistic code living in the world. I go too far then, if that's the stance I take. Now look what, look what Peter goes on to say in verse 11 and 12. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. What's he saying? Since Jesus' resurrection, we are living in the last days. People say you're living in the last days? Yes. For 2,000 years, we've been living in the last days. How much longer? No idea. No idea. Right? But Peter says, listen, because we know we are in the last days, we should live in such a way that our lives doesn't discredit the gospel. That we should live lives that are, that are holy and godly. I don't know when the end is going to come. I don't want to know. I don't know the hearts of people. I don't want to know that either. But whatever is said about me, however long I have on this planet, let it be said about me that I was a student of God's word. That's it. That's all I want. I want to understand God's word. I want to understand his revelation to us. Because in that, I believe, is, is all we need as Christ followers. And not in a cliche way, not in a way that's neat and tidy. God breaks through those, and, 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 and he ravishes us in our lives. Prophecy is there in the Bible. It, it does predict the future. We don't know exactly when. We don't look at it and say, okay, forget about it. But we say, okay, Lord, I don't quite understand it. I don't understand the way it works. But I trust you. I don't need the dates, but I'm going to live as if today's my last day. I'm going to live like you're coming back tomorrow. Because then my life changes and transforms. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear God, we don't know when you're coming back. We don't know the future. And God, I thank you for that. Because it would terrify us. It would terrify us and it would, it would, it would give us a glimpse into something that we are not prepared to deal with. But Lord, I thank you that you have a plan for humanity. I thank you, God, that you are returning, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that when you come, you will install your kingdom on this earth finally. I don't know what the mechanism that looks like, Lord. I don't know how it's going to happen. And I don't know when it's going to happen. But God, I pray that today I live like it's going to happen tomorrow. Because if I remember that, I live differently that my possessions are not mine, that my time is not mine, but instead it's yours. And all the things that I pursue that distract me, God, they're not as important as sharing the gospel, but living my life as you would have. 
God, I thank you that you are merciful to us. I thank you that you are a good, good father. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would find us to be good, good children. Children that are, that are immersed in your grace and mercy, but also passionate for you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.